turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, please. How many of you know what a Karen is? <laughs> Come on, no hands? Nobody knows what a Karen is? Okay. I don't know if I'll go into the whole process of what that is, but in a uh, woke society, which I think it's finally beginning to run its course a little bit, and uh, some people are kind of waking up to the wokeness, if that makes any sense, and getting a little, a little tired of the whole thing. But basically, it's uh, everybody owes me everything, and I don't owe anyone anything. So that's kind of the, let me make sure that this thing is turned off. So I don't get a ring every time the doorbell opens. Um, it's and we see it in our culture. You know, everybody owes me everything. Everybody needs to look out for me. Everybody needs to take care of me. Everybody needs to uh, pay my way through uh, everything. And everything that happens in life and in society is someone else's fault. It's not my fault. Now that's probably not an in-depth explanation, but it is there. Now, when we become Christians, especially in the Christian community, we're supposed to live for other people. We live for Jesus, and by living for Jesus, we are concerned with, and we care about other people. So, they know we are Christians by what? Our love for one another. Good. You were going to say love, right? All right, cool, good deal. Um, our love for one another. And so as Christians, we have to let love be the predominant factor in the things that are going on and the interactions that we have. Sometimes it's better to just not engage. Um, if you're involved in any forum on anything or any kind of communication going on on Facebook or Twitter or any of the other ones out there, you know that whatever is posted, it's going to come with a rebuttal. And they're going to argue that thing to death, no matter what topic it is. No, so sometimes you're just better off. If you, if you feel like God's really telling you to say something, say it and get back. <laughs> say it and leave. But if you keep it going, it's just going to keep on going and going and going and going. So be careful what social media groups you're a part of. And uh, there's some really nasty ones out there. And uh, whichever ones you can get out of, <laughs> I recommend getting out of them or getting off of them if you can. Uh, rarely do you see much of any benefit. One big benefit, and that's if people don't keep getting kicked off of social platforms, is you can hear the gospel. So if you're sick or at home, uh, it's pretty easy to be able to hear uh, teachings about Jesus Christ. That, that is one big plus, but there's a whole lot of caveats in all the rest of it. So Paul is dealing with I, one of the first woke churches, I guess, here in 1 Corinthians. They, they have just about everything they need. It's a, a rich city. Um, philosophy, knowledge, are there arguing points? That's what fires them up is knowing more than the next individual but love doesn't seem to be the guiding factor and 
today, sometimes even as Christians, we can be uh, unloving. Maybe not intentionally, but we can be very unloving or unkind if someone disagrees with us or sees something in a different way than we see it. We need to know understand that rarely, rarely, I'm not going to say it doesn't happen, but rarely are you going to see someone repent and give their life to Jesus Christ on Facebook by a post or two because there's no investment in their life. If there's an investment in people's life, they're much more willing to listen. And if they can see how you live your life, that's even better. So sometimes it's just better uh, to just not engage at all because it'll mess you up. (laughs) And you'll find yourself, if you're not careful, getting depressed. You find yourself looking at life and going, well, what what is there? What's next? And especially for the youth in here, if they hear all the adults talking about the negative, talking about no hope, talking about what do they have to look forward to? They go to school, they get their degree, and then they're going, and then what? Then what? What do I, what do I get involved in? Who do I get involved with? What, what am I supposed to be? Where's my future in that? And as Christians, we need to constantly let our children know that regardless of what is going on in the world, our hope is in Jesus Christ. That has to be uh, first and foremost. And I would also like to point you to many, many times in the past when the world thought it was pretty much coming to an end. And God has intervened. Now, I know that many of you are praying, as I am, for a great revival. I pray that God will give us another chance, that there'll be another opportunity for us to lead people to the Lord. And there is a generation that's coming up much like the older folks' hippie generation, where they had checked out, given up on just about anything, didn't have any trust in the world, didn't have any trust in the government. And look at what God did. God decided to intervene and... Uh, built churches after churches after churches, and many of them pastored by a lot of those people who thought there was no hope. So, again, I want to encourage us that no matter what's out there, I believe in being informed, but be careful about how much information you get and where you get all that information from, because you can find yourself going down a rabbit hole, and uh, if you find yourself in that spot and you find yourself depressed about the whole thing, I just encourage you to snuggle up to the Lord a little more. You know, do a little more devotion. Do a little more reading in the Word of God because I think you'll find that that joy will return if we uh, get closer to the Lord. All right, a little bit of a recap. Last week, Pastor Dan talked about knowledge, puffing up, love, edifying. That word edifying means to, be, to build up. So knowledge in and of itself can make someone feel like they're more important than they are. And I'm sure you've all run across it. There's always someone who thinks they're the smartest person in the room. And that's rarely the case. Sometimes they are, but a lot of times they're not the smartest person in the room. Often it's the guy that's not saying anything. And I would mention a name right now, but I don't want to embarrass him. But it's usually the guy that's quiet, that doesn't say much. So they were so proud of their knowledge. They were so proud of how woke they were. And uh, they were not building up. They were not making each other feel uh, good in the Lord. They were making each other feel bad in the Lord. 
So we have a tremendous amount of freedom as Christians. You realize that, right? You can do just about anything you want. All things are what? Lawful, but not all things are So, we can do just about anything we want, but they're not always good things. I'm sure that throughout any day, we have multiple decisions to be able to make. Have you ever finished the end of the day and said, I didn't get anything done today? (laughs) I was busy. I had a lot of things happening, but I didn't really get anything done today. If you back that up, sometimes those are out of your control. Sometimes they are in your control. You get caught up on something, you spend too much time on that something. So we have a tremendous amount of freedom in Jesus Christ. But that freedom, those freedoms should never cause us to hurt someone else. Never. Now a lot of times you hear people say, and I've heard Christians say, well that means I'm supposed to live my life by somebody else's conscience? Yeah. To some degree. To some degree, if I know that I'm going to do something that I feel have the, I have the liberty to do, but I'm going to hurt someone in the process of that, Paul says I'm supposed to check that. And I'm supposed to be willing to give up that liberty or give up that freedom for the sake of that other individual. Guys, that's just common courtesy, right? That's common Christianity. That should be something that we just, that's just within us. And if we think we're going to hurt somebody, we're careful. Nowadays, we talked about this in the men's study. Nowadays, people go out to, to uh, dinner or whatever and they take pictures of what they're drinking. And if it's alcoholic or not, they take pictures of them and post them on Facebook. Now, is that, do they have the freedom to do that? Yes. Is it the best thing to do? No. Now, why would it not be a good thing to do? Because you have other people, probably several in here, that are recovering alcoholics. They're dealing with certain things. Or maybe they're recovering from drugs or certain lifestyle, right? So we have to be aware of the fact that we might stumble someone. And Paul is going to tell us that that's more important. That person is more important than my liberty. And I'll say what I said the other day. If you're out mowing the yard all day and you want to come in and have a beer. Now, I'm anti alcohol because I was raised in an alcoholic family but the scripture doesn't say you can't come in and have a beer it says not to get drunk right there's a point in time where you have too many of those so is it wrong if you've been out there want to come in and have a beer no it's not but you have to be careful of anyone who might be stumbled by that in your own home that's a little different isn't it You're not out in public. You're not going to stumble someone. And how many times have you been in a restaurant, sat down to eat, and got through, and when you're walking out, there's somebody from your church or somebody that you know that's a born-again believer, born-again Christian. You haven't done anything technically wrong, but you may have hurt somebody that you care about. Now, I know that this is going to be, it's going to raise things inside of you that go on, well, I'm not going to live my life by everybody else's standards. But I hope that we will listen to what Jesus is saying through the Apostle Paul. And that is, we have all of those freedoms, but the church in Corinth was using those freedoms at the hurt of other people. 
You see, the church in Corinth are still uh, entrenched in a lot of religious stuff. Things you do, things you don't do. The meat offered to idols that we talk, we've talked about. And uh, he was saying, you know, the knowledge shows us that there's nothing in that meat. But it, if it's sacrificed to idols and somebody knows it's been sacrificed to idols and you eat from it, then you could really damage them. Because they understand the full um, social as well as spiritual significance of why they are doing that thing. And so it could be a real stumbling block. So, not just for the world, but for our brothers and sisters. Especially for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Because that's who Paul is addressing. So, freedoms must be seasoned with love. Many times those rights will need to be just given up. So that's Paul's focus for chapter 9. So pray with me, please. Father, I pray that you would give us a heart of tenderness. Lord, we see so many things in you. That gentleness, that kindness, that love when you could have called down legions of angels to defend your position, defend your your right as savior of the world, you you could have hurt a lot of people that got in your way, but that wasn't your, that wasn't who you were. You were a God of love and forgiveness. Father, help us to know that love and forgiveness is not a weakness. Love and forgiveness, especially in your case, was power under control. So, Father, help us to realize that that's not a weakness. That's kind of what we're supposed to to do. That's who we're supposed to be as we allow the infilling of your Holy Spirit to dominate our life. We love you, Lord. We pray that we'd be open to what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Jews did not accept Jesus Christ. Most do not today unless they're born again believers. And this is a church where people have come out of that orthodoxy and trying to figure out what to do. And to try to undo a lot of things that maybe they've done for years. Isn't it the same when you and I accepted Jesus Christ? We had to undo as much as we needed to do. You have so many years of doing a thing, saying a thing, and trying to undo those things. For some of us, it might have been just swearing every other breath. And you come to know Jesus Christ, and it comes out, and you're going, man, that just feels wrong now. But it's a habit. It's the way you talk. It's the way you deal with things. And if you listen much in the world, it's, boy, it's out there all over the place. Everybody deals with things that way. But all of a sudden now, we're called, you know, marching by a different drummer. And we have to be careful. And if you allow it, what will happen is that it'll come out of your mouth and you'll go, I'm smarter than this. I'm wiser than this. I mean, I actually had to take English in high school. I know the other words. My vocabulary is a little bit bigger than four-letter words. I can do this. But the old habits kind of 
sneak in. And if you really get mad about something, what's the first thing that comes into your head? Praise Jesus. No, it's not, is it? When you're really mad about something, what comes in? The old person. All those words that you used to use. So, in Acts 14, 19, it says, The Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So, Christianity wasn't just openly accepted. Not in a culture where thousands of years you've had to jump through hoops to be accepted by God. And they got so tired of the religiosity of it that in most cases they just appeared to be religious, but behind the scenes, not at all. So they're coming, they're getting saved. Paul's going to say, hey, I, if I'm not an apostle to anybody else, I'm an apostle to you because I preach the gospel, you gave your life to Jesus Christ, so you're kind of my kids in the faith. And so here they are now trying to get rid of all of those old personality traits, if you will, and adopt themselves or adapt themselves to Christianity. And if you've been raised in a religious environment, you know that those are not easy to break. They're not easy to break. And I've said this before, some of you that are ex-Catholics, you feel guilty about everything. Kind of because you were taught to feel guilty about everything. And you had to go in however often you went in for uh, confession and confess all the things that you had done wrong and uh, have a guy sitting in the little booth next to you tell you, you know, it's been absolved, you're, you're all okay. So if you've been raised in that environment, there's a natural tendency that you feel like God's always looking at you and disappointed in you. That's so far from the truth. That's so far from the truth. God loves his kids, but they're trying to understand this new freedom. They don't quite understand this new freedom. So you have some lording the positions over some of the other people. In Acts 12, 2, it says, And Peter came to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision that supposedly the Christian Jews, they contended with him. The, the Jews and those who had converted, but they hung on to that one thing. If you're not this, if you haven't done that, if you're not, sometimes Christians do that still, right? If you don't speak in tongues, you're not really a Christian. If you don't go to my church, then you're not really saved. If you got saved in another church, that really doesn't count because you didn't get saved in our church, it still happens and it's still going on. In Acts 15.1 it says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Isn't that crazy? We love to put our hang-ups on God. We love to put our prejudices on the Lord. And while God is trying to say, come to me, all ye who labor, you're heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We're trying to say, well, yeah, but you, you can't unless you, no, you can't unless you, and God says, just come, I'll clean you up. 
You know, I'll do the work that needs to be done in your life. Just, just come to me. Don't let anything stand in the way. So becoming a Christian is not always a clean break. We carry a lot of baggage with us. It takes time to grow. It takes time to understand and have that understanding of the Lord. And as babies in our faith, there's going to be a lot of people there and things there to discourage you and put doubt in your minds. One of the disadvantages to having teachings available on the internet is there's a lot of false doctrine. There's a whole lot of stuff out there that says this didn't happen, that didn't happen, this happened. You can, In other words, give me the likes, follow me, and I'll lead you into the truth. You know what? All you need is this. All you need is Jesus allowing the Holy Spirit to run your life. And God will teach you. He will allow you to grow. You don't need me. You don't need Pastor Dan. You don't need anything but Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And you can grow in the knowledge and understanding of the Lord. But when you're a baby in Christ and you're still trying to figure out what's going on, if it sounds religious, if it sounds good, then somebody asked the other day, I think it was at the men's retreat, at the men's Bible study, how many people out there that are going to churches across the world that think their church teaches the word of God? If you ask them, do they teach the Bible? Almost all of them will tell you yes. Because they don't know the word of God. So whoever's in charge will pull out a couple scriptures. They'll start with a couple scriptures and then go into whatever it is that they want to say. But they're not really teaching the word of God. That's one of the things that drew me so much to Calvary Chapel was the verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And I had, I had been a Christian for quite a few years, been actively involved in Christian work. Excuse me. <clears throat> but I had not learned what I needed to learn because Scripture proves Scripture over and over and over and over and over again. In other words, you read something here, it's validated maybe in the next chapter or in the next book. You read something in that book and it's validated in the next one. It just keeps on going. And you build up this solid biblical reference, if you will, in your head, in your heart, of what the Word of God says. Tremendous value in that. Now, most of you, most of us, would not take a novel that we are interested in and skip to chapter four. Right? Read chapter four and then go, eh, it's a pretty long book. I think uh, I'll skip to chapter eight. So you skip to chapter eight. And then finally you're going, now this is not going as fast as I wanted to. I'm going to skip to the end and you read the end. That's not the way to get the most out of a novel, is it? Or a book. And yet, in a lot of cases, that's exactly what happens in our, in our faith. And from our teachers, they teach us like that. But really knowing what the Word of God teaches, you get that from verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and on and on. So, they're even questioning Paul's right to be an apostle. That debate is still going on, folks. There are people out there that are arguing that Paul was not a true apostle. That because he wasn't one of the original 12, none of his stuff matters. And you know what? You might as well throw your Bible away because much of the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul. So you're going to find the Apostle Paul answering those questions from himself right out of his own mouth. Look at verses 1 and 2. 
I am not an apostle. Excuse me. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord, rode to Damascus, right? Blinded by the light. Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to others yet, doubtless I am to you. That's kind of tongue-in-cheek. He is an apostle to everybody. But he's saying, even if I wasn't to everybody else, I, I doubtless, I surely am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. That title, apostleship, had some, some very things you needed to have seen the Lord. Paul had seen the Lord. On and on, Paul's saying, I'm an apostle. He shouldn't even have to defend that, but he has to. But again, guys, you are going to run across, if you study the word and you listen to what other people are saying, you are going to run across eventually somebody saying that the apostle Paul was not a true apostle. And they'll say other things, like uh, uh, Luke didn't really write uh, his books. Uh, The story goes on. It always amazes me at how people have so much wisdom that they can question the word of God. They can get up and tell people, well, this wasn't really this, and this wasn't really that. And yet, what's the warning at the end of Revelation about adding to or taking away? Pretty hefty warning. Okay, the word apostle means one separated, and secondly, one sent forth. Right? Paul was a former hater of the church. He persecuted the church and prosecuted all he could anyway. And he had definitely been separated from his old thoughts and his old lifestyle. So here's the question for us this morning. Have I been separated Do I still have one foot in, one foot out? Or have I been separated in Christ? Now what does that mean? That I have to be a pastor? No. Have to be an elder? No. Have to be a deacon? No. It just means in our individual life we've said Jesus Christ is my Lord. I no longer live by the world's standards. I live by God's standards. That he has set forth in the word of God. To the best of my ability, I have been separated I am a born-again believer. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not afraid to say, yeah, I am a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Now, please know and understand this, that in our society today, if you say that, there are going to be a bunch of other labels put on you. Because you believe in sanity. (laughs) Because you believe in truth. Society will put a bunch of labels on you just because you believe in Jesus Christ. So Paul had been separated. As a member of the Sanhedrin, he had spent his whole life studying. And he had his entire life pretty much mapped out. And I want to ask you to show your hands, but there's many of you here today that you had your entire life mapped out. Jesus came into your life and changed everything. You find yourself not wanting or necessarily pursuing those things that you thought were so important to you, but now they're not. Those are just not so important. And God has separated you. He's pulled you out of that lifestyle. And you remember the story when he was still Saul, he's on the road to Damascus. He's going to 
persecute more, bring in more of those Christians, and God interrupted his life. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? That, I know I've said this dozens of times, but it just always blows me away. Here's on a man that's on a mission for God, right? He feels like he's on a mission for God. He feels like he's on a mission from God. And when God speaks to him, he goes, uh, who are you? Man, I would, I would call that missing the mark, wouldn't you? You think you're doing something for God and in God, but the reality of it is you're not doing that at all. And God tells him, I am Jesus, the one that you are persecuting. So not only did God separate him for the work, he sent him to get equipped to do the work. So he's separated and he is sent. In Acts 9, verses 17 and 18, it says, And Ananias went his way and he entered into the house and laying his hands on him, that is Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me to you. May you receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and he was baptized. In verse 20, immediately he preached uh, Jesus Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Life change, about faith. See, I love that about the Lord no matter what our circumstances are. No matter who we were, if we will just give him half a chance, he will come into our life and change our life. Paul goes from being full of hate, persecuting even the God that he thought he was helping, to a man who realizes he knows nothing as he should know. Isn't that right? Wisdom just has... The tendency to puff up. That was Paul. And all of a sudden the Lord tells him, you don't know anything. He interrupts him, his life, sends him to Ananias. You might remember Ananias was afraid to even go see him. Ananias, I mean, they had, everybody had heard of Paul. Everybody knew what Paul was capable of and he, he, was, he was afraid to even go until the Holy Spirit said, Go. It's okay, he's one of us now. Such, uh, excuse me, some great Bible teachers, such as G. Campbell Morgan, he believes that when Peter had the meeting to replace Judas, that he might have rushed it a little bit. Now what do I mean by that? Well, you might remember he replaced Judas with Matthias. How many of you have read about Matthias after that mention. Nothing. He just disappears. You don't hear anything about him. You don't hear anything that he's written. You hear, you hear nothing. So some, some scholars out there believe that if he would have waited that Paul, this would have happened. That would have been Paul. 
that Paul should have been the one that was picked over Matthias. Now, I don't know. You have scholars who believe that he should have waited. You have others that believe it was God's timing. This is the way God worked it out. I'm one of those that when something happens like this, I believe that God is in all things. Do I always understand? No, I don't understand. Maybe he did it this way so that Paul could reference all of the works and the things that he's done in the name of Jesus Christ. But I don't believe that God makes mistakes. People make mistakes, but God doesn't make any mistake. So they're questioning Paul. Why do you have the right to say these things to us? You're not even a real apostle. And he tells them, aren't you guys the seal of my authority? Isn't the church in Corinth the seal of my authority? Isn't that the proof that God anointed me and I came and I gave the gospel to you? So if for nobody else, at least for that reason alone. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6, he said, I planted Apollos, what? Watered. But who gave the increase? Now guys, it's important that we understand this. You may be a planter, you may be a waterer, but it's God that gives the increase. I think that as a Christian, you will be a planter and a waterer. Sometimes a planter and a waterer with the same person. Sometimes somebody else will plant and you'll do the watering. Sometimes you'll do the planting and somebody else will do the watering. It's okay. Those are all part of us sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. It's God that gives the increase. And so many times we think that, you know, a church grows to 5,000 or 10,000, that it was us that did the increase. No, we weren't. It's not us. It had nothing to do with us. It was God that gave the increase. It's always God that gives the increase. And I would also say that, uh, how do I put this? Growth is not ever, is not always a sign of a good thing. We might think, you know, having money is a sign of prosperity. Not necessarily. If I win the lottery, man, I could do so much. Well, maybe. So what I'm trying to say is that we might think that prosperity looks a certain way, but oftentimes when we go back to the word of God, it doesn't look like that at all. And if we ever get to the point to where we think that we are so smart that we've made so much success out of our own life and we did it, we're wrong. That is a very dangerous place to be. God gives the increase. So, the church there in Corinth is a result of Paul being set apart and him being sent forth. He was their spiritual leader. He carried that seal of authority. Just as Pilate had sealed the grave of Christ with the authority of his office. Guys, you might remember, put his signet ring, closed closed up the, the grave, and he put his royal seal there to close the, the door. So if that was opened, you didn't open it. <laughs> if someone in that kind of authority put their seal on something like that, you didn't open it. Probably with penalty of death. And he's telling them, guys, 
you bear my seal as an apostle. Look at verse 3. He says, my defense to those who examine me, examine me is this. Now he's using a couple of words here from where we get the word apologetics. The uh, word defense that he's using, these are actually legal terms. And he's saying, they, uh, my defense to those who examine me. That defense word comes from the Greek word apologia, which is where we come, we get the word apologetics. And as I said, it is a legal term. So here's he's saying, here's the evidence that will clear me of any wrong charges, right? You've, you've brought me before the courts, basically. You're questioning my authority. And here's the evidence that I want to give you. Look at verse 4. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do also the other apostles? Now I'm assuming he's hitting these points because somebody's questioning him about these points. Some of those apply to him. Some of them just apply to apostleship or the bulk of the apostles in general. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do others? Oh, the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Now, he clarifies that. Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same thing also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is God concerned about the oxen? Yes, you remember the story in the treading of the grain and the millstone, right? That's the way they would crush up the grain. Usually have uh, an ox oxen that was uh, pulling, you know, he was strapped at the shoulders and he would run around in a circle turning these big, big stones called millstones and they were to grind the grain into flour, right? And he's going, you don't muzzle that ox while he's working, you know, you don't keep him from eating, you don't keep him from drinking, you want him to stay strong, you want him to be able to continue to do the job. That's what he's talking about. Now, does he say that about the oxen? Is he concerned about the oxen? Or does he say that for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope. He who threshes in hope should be partakers of that hope. Here's the point. Remember at the beginning I talked a little bit about hope? Especially for some of the the younger folks and, and, and us older ones too. And that is, we look at things going on and we go, man, a lot of people are losing hope. A lot of people are losing hope in America. A lot of people are losing hope in the future. We need to have hope. He's saying that that one who plows needs to plow in hope. And he that threshes, he should thresh in hope. He should be partakers of that. When you take away hope, you take away incentive. Why should I do this if it's not going to produce anything? Why should I go out and work 
if working makes me less money than the government paying me not to work. You know, right now, restaurants are really struggling because they can't get people to serve. That's why a lot of times when you go, there's a whole section that's sectioned off. There's nobody there because they don't have the wait staff to be able to take care of them. It's really, really hard to get people to be able to come in and do that. Yesterday, I went to Harbor Freight to get some little uh, tool what do you call them? Tool trays, right? To put stuff in. And uh, it, by the time I got there, it was pretty well bare. It wasn't much there. And so there's a couple of signs. I was looking for a specific kind, small enough, small compartments. And, I, you know, I don't work there. So I don't know what the part numbers are on the tags and I don't know what they relate to, and there's no visual sign for me to be able to tell what exactly was on there. So I asked one of the, the ladies there. She goes, well, what do you want? <laughs> and I said, well, that's a good question. She goes, well, what does it look like? And I said, I don't know. There's nothing on the shelf to have a reference. She goes, well, how am I supposed to be able to help you if you don't know? The... She just kind of goes off, and I'm going, I... I uh, I almost said, you know, you ought to consider getting another job <laughs> because you're so unhappy with, uh, with this one. But that's uh, kind of what's happened to folks. You know, they, they, don't, they don't see much future. A lot of hope has been taken away. But I want to go back. We have the greatest hope. We have the greatest hope in Jesus. Jesus can change things that quick. So we have hope. And we, we've got to be careful we don't stumble other people by acting like we have no hope because our hope is in the Lord. So he's basically saying if you, if you plow, you should be able to reap the benefits of that. So in verse 11 he says, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right See, that's love. He had the right. But he says, we haven't used that right. But we endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you not know that those who minister in the holy things eat of the holy things in the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So evidently there in Corinth, they're telling that, you know, they have some issues with Paul's team. And maybe it's linked to the fact that they wonder if Paul should really be... um, an apostle, or maybe it's just linked to the pocketbook. You know, sometimes we have a million reasons why, and I know you're going to, I hesitate to even say this because, but sometimes we have a million reasons why we don't give to the work of the Lord. But the bottom line is, we just want to keep it. I mean, bottom line is we just want to keep it. If we don't trust our fellowship, we should find a church that we trust. But we got to look at it and say, this is not for the church. This is for the work of God. This is for the things that, that God's doing through our church and being able to preach the gospel and being able to provide Sunday school and being able to provide those millions of pounds of fish that the kids have eaten through all the years, right? All of those things. 
Paul wasn't married, but evidently these guys didn't think any of them should be because they had to support two people instead of one. Now, Paul worked as a tent maker almost wherever he could and whenever he could, almost every time he had a a chance. But evidently, there were other people who uh, felt like they didn't want to help help him out, even if he was between jobs. Now, Paul believes that scripturally they were wrong and he illustrates those points. Look at verse seven. He says, the Roman soldier. He says, the Roman soldier doesn't sign up and pay for his own care. The military does. And be it very, very small amounts, it's been the case. The military provides the room and board. Of course, they tell you what to do for that, but they provide the room and board and you're not having to pay to be able to survive or to to live. Now, Uncle Sam takes care of those needs. Maybe not the best of clothes and maybe not the best of haircuts, but, but they, have a, they have a place to stay. He mentions the farmer, right? At least in the old days, the farmer lived off of his own crops. He tasted of those first before he sold any in the market. So he got the first fruits, if you will. He got the first orange. He got the first watermelon. He got the first apple. And then he mentions the rancher. He had the freshest milk. Because he had all the milk cows, he had the best cheese, and he had the best steaks. Because he was the one providing those before they went to market. So, in verses 10 through 13, he's saying, like the plowman, he he plows in hope of the harvest. Right? He doesn't go out and plant all those seeds, go through all of that work thinking, oh, this is for nothing. He'd go out and then he'd pray for rain. (laughs) So Paul's just saying they should be able to count on those he had invested in. In the Old Testament, the support of the tribe of Levi, which was the priesthood, that was the obligation and privilege of those who loved the Lord. Let me give you a couple scriptures. In number 1820, it says, Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in the land, nor shall you have any portion among them, I am your portion and you are my inheritance among the children of Israel. And then he goes on in Numbers 18, 24, for the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore, I have said to them, among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. You get that? In other words, no land, no property, no anything. Their job was to officiate in the temple to be God's servants. And then the nation of Israel was to support that work. If you go into the book of uh, Micah and you go into some of the other things that are going on, you'll see that what happened is Israel slowly fell away from God. And as they fell away from God, you know what happened to the service in the temple? They had to go back to their farms and their fields because people had lost that relationship with God. Please let me try to explain here, it wasn't about the money. It's never about the money, unless you're a a criminal, then it's all about the money. But it's never about the money in Scripture. What the problem is, is that relationship with God. When you and I have that relationship with God, we become a new creature in the Lord. God changes things about us. Our value system changes. But as we suffer in that relationship with the Lord if we pull back from the Lord the things that are most important they fade 
And then the things that we used to think are important, all of a sudden now, they kind of rear their ugly head again. But God's really never been concerned about the money. That's just one of the things that we love, his money. That's one of the things that's not just attached to our our pocketbook, it's attached to our heart, right? And so that's the one thing he goes, do you love me more? Do you have that relationship with me that compels you out of love? Not out of duty. Doesn't scripture say God loves a cheerful giver? That's not just money. That's in anything we give to other people. God loves a cheerful giver. Not somebody that's almost ripping that dollar bill in half because somebody's got one in and you got the other pulling it back and you're struggling on it. God loves the cheerful giver. And it's usually never about the amount so much as it is the heart. All right, Nehemiah verses 13, excuse me, chapter 13, verses four through 10. I'm almost done here. Now before this, Eliashib, the high priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of God, was allied with Tobiah. And I'm gonna give you a little background here in a minute. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles of tithes of grain, the new wine, the oil. They were commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the offerings of the priest. But during all this, when I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king and I came to Jerusalem and I discovered the evil that Eliashim had done to Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of God. In other words, he had taken this storehouse, this warehouse area that was dedicated to the things of God, cleaned it all out and put a pagan in there. <laughs> put a guy that, that didn't love the Lord. Now that's, that's weird priorities, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? But have we ever been guilty of taking the things of God and cleaning them out and putting something else in his place? Yeah, probably all of us at one time or another. Then in verse nine of that same chapter, he says, then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. And I also realized that the portion of the Levites had not been given to them for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to their fields. This is from Nehemiah. Nehemiah is saying, look what, look what happened. God had all this set up because of the hearts of the individual. That fellowship in the temple, which should have been the heart of our lives. What's the heart of our lives? Jesus Christ, our fellowship with each other. Our church, even if that's a different church. That's the heart of our, of our existence. That's the heart of our, of our world, is Jesus Christ. And they had abandoned that. All right, verse 15. First Corinthians. But I have used none of these things. Paul's saying, I have a right to them all, but I haven't used any of these things. Nor have I written these things that I should be done, that it should be done so for me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. In other words, I'd be better off to die than hurt the gospel and to hurt the work of the ministry or to hurt Jesus Christ 
He says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid on me. Yes, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward, but if I do it against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. You know what a stewardship is, right? Somebody gives you $20, just hold on to this for me. And you spend it. (laughs) Stewardship is taking care of somebody else's stuff. So Paul's saying, if I just do it because of legalship, then legalities, he says, then I just, I just, I'm a steward. That's all I am. Verse 18, he says, what is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more. If you're a Christian, you are a servant to every other Christian. And even a lot of non-Christians. Remember that if you are young and one day find somebody you think you love and you want to get married. You're not going to marry them. If you are a Christian, you're not marrying them so they can serve you. You are marrying them to serve them. So many people today goes, well, that's beneath me. That messes with my dignity. Well, maybe it needs to. But a marriage is two people serving each other. Not taking everything they can get, but it's serving each other. Caring for each other. Trying to make each other's life pleasant. Bringing out the best in each other, not ripping them apart. So, then he goes... um, To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without the law towards God, but under law towards Jesus, or towards Christ, that I may win those who are without the law. And he says, and to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some of them. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run a race, they all run, but only one wins? That's the way it used to be, and that's the way it's supposed to be, but now everybody wins, right? <laughs> Insanity, guys. If your kid can't play football, they can't play football. And the odds are pretty good he's not going to be a pro football player anyway, so you're wasting your time. No, you're not wasting your time. If you're going out and enjoy any sport with your child, that's awesome. That's a wonderful thing. But I'm just saying... They run a race, they they run to win. And as a result of that, they would put their body through rigorous exercise and diet in order to be able to win a crown. And that crown that they would receive was perishable. It's just a bunch of woven things that go around their head made out of leaves and branches. But they wanted to win. That was a mark that they were victorious, that they were number one, that they had won. He says, thus I run with certainty, not without uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. You get shadow boxing, right? You know what shadow boxing is. Everybody's a good shadow boxer. But in the ring, you wouldn't fare so well. Everybody's an armchair quarterback, but you wouldn't do so well on the field. 
He says, I run not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection. Least when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So Paul is saying, I'm doing this because I love the Lord. That's the bottom line. Do I have the right? Yes, I do. But I try to make sure I'm not exerting that right. I'm not demanding that right because I don't want anybody to accuse me of wrongdoing. But yet here he is being accused of wrongdoing anyway. All right, let me close this. Which is more important, our rights or God's plan? Love limits liberty. If we take nothing else from this teaching, love limits liberty. It's not a sacrifice, it's an honor. If you and I have the right and the liberty to do something and we choose not to do it because we care about that other individual, that is a high call. That, that is a, that's way up here on the right things to do. If we've hurt somebody by the exercise of our liberty... Have you ever had anybody, because I have, have you ever have any, had anyone who they knows that one thing bothers you, that it stumbles you, that it hurts you, and they do it intentionally? They do it knowing full well that you're going to be hurt by it. You don't have to show me your hands, but has that ever happened to any of you guys? That's not love. That's not love in any way, shape, or form. But we've got to ask the question, have I done that to anyone else? Have I uh, used my, my liberty knowing that it was going to hurt somebody else? If that's true, maybe we need to go back to them and ask them for forgiveness. Maybe ask the Lord for forgiveness and them. Maybe it needs to be from both. Maybe it's time to put liberty back on the altar or maybe even ask the Lord to take, take that thing away.